what it would be like to have been a part of following Jesus back in the time that the New Testament was written. Before Twitter, uh, before Pinterest, before Facebook, before Snapchat, before iPhones, smartphones, iPods, before Playstations, Xboxes, and every other gadget that we could buy, before there was a Best Buy, before there was electricity, before there were light bulbs, before there were automobiles, back when there was no lights in the service, there were no microphones, and the only magic that could be produced was the magic of a God who was acting in human history. Imagine, if you will, if you've ever had the chance, or you ever get a chance, you should go. Back in 1997, I had the opportunity to go to Israel, and I got to go out on the water where the disciples would have been, out on the water at 5 in the morning until about 9. And when you're out there in the calm of that moment, the fog is very dense, and it does look like anything out there is very ghostly. Imagine if you're on a boat with Jesus. Remember, this is pre-technology, pre-Hollywood. You're out on a normal boat like you have been on before, catching fish or whatnot. And you see a figure coming to you on the water. Of course, you would be terrified. Most of us would even be terrified today if that were to happen to us. Maybe you go out on Lake Watauga early in the morning dense fog, and you see someone coming to you, it would scare you. The only thing that you hear as you go out early in that morning is the calm wake of the water beating up against the boat, and you feel the breeze. But the disciples on this particular morning saw someone coming toward them. And the scripture tells us that they were overwhelmed, that they were terrified... In fact, in Matthew chapter 14, as they were terrified and they cried out, it's a ghost, Jesus immediately says to them in verse 27 of chapter 14, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. And then Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. The beautiful part of this story is that it's an illustration of all that Jesus does all the time. And that is, every time there's an encounter with Jesus, there is an invitation to come to him. Jesus never ever shows up without inviting people to be radically changed by him. And if you look in the scriptures... Story after story, scripture after scripture, section after section is the story of men and women and children just like you and me that God used in amazing ways to accomplish his plan. And every single time someone goes away with an essential truth, they don't always go away happy. Some people go away disgruntled because God demands more of them than what they're willing to give. But every single time there is an invitation to join God in His work. I think that's probably the reason that in churches today, at least in Bible-believing churches, evangelical churches, there's a push of invitation, a moment in time to invite you to join God in what He's doing. We do that every single Sunday at the end of the sermon. We have a hymn of invitation. The hymn of invitation is not just a segment to put in a bulletin because we've always done it. The invitation is there to elicit a response 
on our part to join God more fully engaged with what he's doing. Uh, this week was a Southern Baptist Convention. I didn't go because it was in Phoenix. Uh, but one of the frequent things that happens when I go, when you get a bunch of preachers in the room, uh, preachers talk about numbers. Everybody's concerned about numbers. And so I love going and participating in it and, and poking fun at people. It's, it's quite fun and amusing. But one of the things I thoroughly enjoy doing is sitting with other ministers and making it as awkward for them as I possibly can. I'm that type of person. Uh, some of you know that. And so uh, frequently, uh, over dinner or something, people ask me, man, how many decisions did you have on Sunday morning? And I always tell them, uh, over 300. We have, we have 300 decisions every single week. Man, I'd give anything to have that type of ministry. I said, I know you would. 300 decisions a week, and it's, a re- it's, it's true. Every single Sunday, if you're here, you're making a decision. Now, your decision may not be grandiose. It may not be walking an aisle. You may save your handkerchief and pull it out at a later time. Some of you don't even know what a handkerchief is, and that's okay. But my point is this. Every single Sunday, every single moment of every day that God engages you, you and I, we are making a decision about whether we're going to pursue Him or whether we're not. Whether we're going to surrender or whether we're not. And even if you're a follower of Jesus, surrendering doesn't end when you accept Christ. Surrendering is a lifestyle commitment. Every day, every moment, you and I have to choose to surrender to a greater God who loves us. It's not a one-time thing and the game is over or it's set. It is perpetually, we must decide day in and day out whether we're going to be pursuers and followers of this Jesus who has given everything for us. So Jesus is always inviting us to come. He says in verse 29, come, come, he said to those disciples. Then Peter gets out of the boat and he walked on water and he came toward Jesus. Jesus waited patiently. Jesus always waits patiently. Jesus is a good, good father. His father is a good, good father. And he wants what is best for you as a potential follower or as a follower of him. He he wanted what was best for Peter. And so Peter says, if it's you, Lord, let me come out to you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter decides to get out on the boat and walk to him. Now I want to put this in perspective. Peter gets out in the middle of the water to walk towards Jesus. There is no doubt in my mind, nor should there be anybody's in this room, that Peter believed that with Jesus the impossible could be realized. And if you and I are followers of Jesus, that is an essential truth in the character of Peter that we need to latch on to. That is, that God is in in the business of doing the impossible through us. God enabled Peter, Jesus enabled Peter to get out of the boat and walk on water. How many of you have ever walked on water? Did you know that in January of 2014, you hired me as a pastor of First Baptist Church, and I have walked on water. It's an amazing story. Brent, have you ever walked on water? Three times to be awesome. 
Thought I was going to one him up. Well, I just got one down. In January of 1996, it has always been a dream of mine to walk on water and to be able to advertise that. I've never actually put it on my resume, though I've been tempted. Um, and so, because I'm telling you, when you look at ministers' resumes, they're crazy. But anyway, in January of 1996, before I met my wife, I don't even know if you knew this, I walked on water. And it went like this. We're at the university, and uh, there is what, I, what is called today the Lake Hollifield Complex. What that means is this. There was a rich lady who decided she wanted to donate $6 million to the university, the largest single donation ever been given to the university. And uh, they were very pleased, and they wanted to spend it the way they wanted to spend it. And she said, no, you're going to spend it on what I want. I want a Carillon Tower. Does everybody know what a Carillon is? It's this tower with bells on it, okay? Uh, yeah. Anyway, so Carillon, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Carillon with bells built this, and she says, I want a huge lake built on this property. And I want it to be called the Lake Hollifield Complex. Well, they either take the money and do what she wants, or they don't get the money. So they took the money. Uh, and what we deemed it as, now it may be different today, uh, and I don't mind if it goes out on the airways, what we deemed it as students, it was a mosquito cesspool. That's what it was. Huge, huge body of water in the middle of campus. It stunk to high heavens. Mosquitoes were all over it. But in January 1996, it came such a cold weather that it froze over. And I said, ah. I'm going to walk on water. So I got a bunch of buddies of mine, and I, we tied a rope, and there was a little pier that went out about uh, a fourth of the way out in the middle of the, of the water. And I said, guys, I want to walk on water. They said, you're crazy. I said, no, no, no. I want, I want to be able to do, I want to be able to do, uh, to do this without having Jesus walking to me and say, come, I just want to do it to, to say I've walked on the water. So I get out in the middle of this pier, step down, climb down, have this rope, and I start walking on the water. It's awesome. I'm telling you, it's amazing to walk on water. It takes so much faith. And uh, so I'm walking on the water, and as I turn around, I hear this. And it was subtle at first, okay? Uh, and, it, and all around me, I'm hearing this cracking sound, and I suddenly realize... Oh my, uh, I walked on the water, I died on the water. That's going to be the biography. And so I start running. Well, didn't have boots, okay? Didn't have boots. Uh, I was in tennis shoes, and I'm slipping. You know, I'm running back towards the pier. Well, I get about, I don't know, eight or ten yards off of, of the bank of the, of the water where all the miry mud and muck is, and I fall through. I was terrified. As a matter of fact, uh, well, I won't go there. Anyway, I was terrified. Uh, there's something that happened in that moment. But I, I was terrified. I thought I was going to die. So when you ask, what kind of pastor do you have at First Baptist Church? All you have to do is say, I don't know much about him, but I do know he walked on water. True story. Peter walked on water. And the interesting thing about what happens in this story and this passage of Scripture is it illustrates what followers of Jesus should do like Peter. Followers of Jesus don't expect Jesus to come to them. Followers of Jesus seek to go where Jesus is. Notice what Peter says. He doesn't say, Jesus, if that's you, Lord, come to me. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. How many times in the life of the church... Do we pray that God would come and act in this moment, in this place? Rather, the discerning where God is acting and moving and working and plug ourselves in to where he's working. 
Do you know that God is working outside the parameters of these walls? In fact, probably 99.9% of what's going on in the spiritual realm is happening outside of the walls of the universal church. Not just First Baptist, but the universal church. God is at work in our neighborhood. God is at work in our communities. God is at work in our town, in our state, in our country, in our nation. God is at work in our hemisphere. God is at work in the universe bringing bringing all creation, hopefully, to a point of invitation. Because everything that God does is an invitation to invite us to join Him. And so He told Peter, come, just come. And so Peter, who I'm sure the other disciples thought he had left his mental faculties behind, gets out of the boat and begins to walk. And he's so focused on Jesus. And as long as he's focused on Jesus, he's doing great. But he begins to take in his environment. He begins to take in his circumstances. He begins to look at his story in light of the way the world would look at it, the way science of the day would look at it, the way science of today would look at it. And as he looks at his circumstances and he begins to focus on the environment, he begins to sink. Now, this is Father's Day. And I want to ask you, fathers, I told moms, you know, I kind of I beat up on the moms on Mother's Day. And so I told Tavi yesterday, I said, you know, I'm going to be beating up on the Father's Day. And she goes, don't beat up on the fathers. They need encouragement. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to encourage you. Uh, but in my encouragement, you know, there needs to be a jolt. And here, and here it is, gentlemen. Um, I have been married for 18 years. I'm be 18 years this year. Uh, they have been 18 amazing years. Um, and if you talk to my wife, she will tell you there have been some times that she would just like to kick me to the curb. There have been some times where she said, you know, you just need to sleep on the couch. This is ridiculous. Uh, and I've never done that towards her. Uh, you know, I'll, you know, I, you know. And, but, and, but we're being honest about our relationship. Uh, and you know, she, would, she would tell you this, and I tell all couples this. There's no perfect relationship. But here's what I'll say to you, and if I use my marriage, and my marriage by no means is the model, I'll just throw that out the window, but I'm just going to tell you some of the things that I've learned over 18 years, and some of you have been married a lot longer than me, uh, sometimes I'm meeting you for breakfast and you're telling me how to do things, and that's awesome, uh, because I need to learn more each and every day. When you stop learning, you start dying. Uh, and so one of the things I've learned over the years, if there's a problem in our relationship, it is not my role as the father or of the husband to point to her. My role is to make sure I'm looking to Jesus. Nine times out of ten, you know, there's variances here, but nine times out of ten, when there's a problem in our marriage, and every marriage has difficulties and struggles, when there's a problem in our marriage, it usually is because... I, for a, a split second or nanosecond or a couple minutes or an hour or whatever, a day or season, have taken my eyes off of Jesus. When you take your eyes off of Jesus, you will sink. You will. So if you're here today and you're not in a perfect marriage, join the club. I'm not 
either. She's not either. I'm not a perfect person by any way, shape, or form. In fact, she could have married a lot better guys than me. But I've realized in our family, and we've talked about this time and time again, there can only be one chief in the family. And, you know, she'll remind me every once in a while, you know, that I'm the chief, which is a lot of responsibility. And she will tell people all the time, you know, sometimes when you've got two strong-willed people, and we are very strong-willed in our own, in our own way, you can't have two chiefs in a relationship. And she'll say, you know, my role, she goes, I will submit to him, but he better be focused on Jesus. And what I want to tell you today, dads, what I want to tell you today, fathers, what I want to tell you today, husbands, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your focus on Jesus. Some of you might say, some husbands might say today, well, you know, that's great, Todd, but my problem is not like yours. It's not a problem that I'm not looking at Jesus. My problem is my wife. And you know what I found is interesting? We're very good at pointing the finger at everybody else. We're not very good men at looking in the mirror and really evaluating who we are and, more importantly, whose we are. We're very good at trying to manage people, typically. But we're not good at surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. Men are very good, usually, in leading. We're not so good in following. And you see, in Christianity and in this relationship with Christ, there can only be one leader. And I tell people all the time in leadership training type things that if you want to be the best leader in the home, if you want to be the best father, if you want to be the best husband, if you want to be the best leader in your business, if you want to be the best leader in the community, if you want to be the best leader as a politician, if you want to be the best leader, period, the best leaders on this planet are always followers of Jesus. Now, if you don't believe that, there's a problem. And I would submit to you the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with us. We need to follow Jesus. We need to look to Him and quit whining. Men are whiners. Women, do you find that to be true? I mean, we are. Men are whiners. We whine about everything, you know. I cut my hand uh, with, you know, with a knife, or I cut my hand with, you know, with a piece of paper. Oh, it hurts. And I do this, you know. I, oh, it hurts. Oh, my gosh, I don't know. That's workman's comp. I tell Linda all the time. Um, guys, try giving birth. Just try it. I want you to think about that. Your wife is a lot stronger than you. You say, well, I never had a child. Have you had a kidney stone? Our wives, our women are very strong. They're not perfect either. But they need their husband. They need their husband to look to Jesus. They don't need their husband to be like all the other men and all the other followers that are around. They need their husband to be like Peter, who's willing to get out of the boat. So many men will complain about their marriages, complain about, oh, I don't have this. They complain about their circumstances. When we look at our circumstances and when we allow those circumstances to infiltrate 
what we believe and how we act, when we allow it to affect our attitude and our behavior, we will always, always sink. Peter, as long as he's focused on Jesus, as long as he kept the main thing, the main thing, he was able to do the impossible. He was able to do and be extraordinary. But when he looked away, when he paid more attention to the wind and more attention to the water, when he took his eyes off of Jesus, that was his most vulnerable moment. And gentlemen, your most vulnerable moment is always when you and I take our eyes off of the king. Now make no mistake, every great follower of Jesus fails. You're going to fail to be the father you need to be. You're going to fail to be the husband that you need to be. You are going to sink. We just do that. We're, we're going to sink. But God who is rich in mercy, all we have to do is cry out. I say, Jesus, save me. And Jesus doesn't wait on his legion of angels or his messengers. He doesn't even wait on other followers or other disciples to help. He reaches down in the midst of where we are in our most depraved moment when we are sinking, when we, when we have lost our way and when the waters are crashing in around us and we are so overwhelmed by our circumstances, he reaches down in the midst of our sinking and sets us in the right place. I've been in church work long enough to know this, that some of the greatest occurrences of abuse and hurt and pain has not been inflicted by outside the church. The greatest pain I've experienced has been inside the church by other disciples and followers of Jesus. I'm going to tell you what I think probably happened in this story. After this scripture was recorded, after this story unfolded, when Peter gets back in the boat... Of course, the disciples are overwhelmed. They've worshipped him. They acknowledge him as the son of God. But I'm going to tell you, there was a moment in the near future that happened when Peter, you know, messed up again or whatnot. And I can guarantee you, one of his disciples that he was close to pulled him aside and said, you know what? You stink because you started sinking. How horrible you were. When you began to sink, how horrible you were. If you would have just kept your eyes on Jesus, you wouldn't have gone as deep as you went. But I want you to know dads, I want you to know fathers, I want you to know husbands, I want you to know men of God today. That though Peter sank, Peter was willing to get out of the boat. So many men stay in the boat of comfortability. They want Jesus and they want Jesus, they want to be saved, they want to be, uh, you know, they want to be, uh, um, they want to be his followers, they want to go to heaven, they want to lead their, their, they want to lead good families, they want to love their wives, all these things. But they're unwilling to get out of the boat. Faith is never safe. If you're practicing faith in a safe way, you're not practicing faith. Faith will always demand of you far more that's within you. Faith will always demand you to do the impossible. And the only way that you can do the impossible is by looking to Jesus. So if you're here this morning 
and your marriage is not the greatest, if you're here this morning and the relationship with your children is estranged or you've got issues and circumstances, join the club. I do too. But the solution is not for God to fix your wife. The solution is for you to pray, for you to align to Him. Quit praying for someone else to fix themselves or God to fix them. Begin looking for the change within yourself. And this is what, I've said this dozens of times here, submission has never been an issue in our marriage. Never. And it's not because I'm a hardcore Southern Baptist and I say, it's going to be this way. I mean, you know my wife. That's not going to work. Okay? When you, listen, men, when you love your wife like Christ loved the church, your wife will follow you anywhere you want to go. There are so many stories of that that I could invite men up here to talk about. Stories of bold and daring business moves where the wife said, I don't see it. I don't know how this is going to work out. I can't imagine this working out. And the husband said, but I believe this, this is what God wants us to do. And this person I'm thinking about, uh, she said, you know what? So I just, I went with it. And now she looks back and she says, that was amazing. That was amazing. You see, when the husband follows God, when the husband's pursuing God and the woman surrenders, she's not doing the husband's will. She's doing God's will because he's pursuing Jesus. If our marriages are to be the greatest they can be, it's going to be when the husband loves his wife like Christ loved the church. It's going to be when the husband, when the father decides to look straight to Jesus. It's going to be when the husband decides to get out of the boat. So my encouragement to all of you this morning, as Jesus comes to us where we are and he invites us to join him, My encouragement to you is just look to Jesus. He's going to take you places that you never dreamed or imagined. He's going to do things in your life that you never saw coming. And when all is said and done, there will be those spectators, those pundits, there will be those politicians, there will be those individuals, God bless their every soul, and they're in every church. They'll be the radically, radically hardcore Southern Baptist individual and they will be the, the person that points the finger and say, well, you failed here and you didn't do that. At the end of the day, they're going to turn into dust. Okay? That's just the reality. At the end of the day, don't allow your motivation, don't allow your energy, don't allow your faith, don't allow your fellowship to be determined by your other comrades. Allow your obedience to be dictated. Allow your obedience to be centered in just looking to Jesus.